Some of you know I grew up with a skin condition called eczema, which is just dry, flaky, itchy skin. And it was very obvious, and many of my family members had it, but I had it the worst. It just was very obvious. I had classmates who would call me disease boy. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong, and there's a version of Walgreens called Watson's, but there was always at the front uh, like a cosmetics section with like name brand cosmetics. And so I always went into Watson's with a little fear and trembling because I knew I had to get through the cosmetic ladies who always wanted to sell me some fancy brand name moisturizer because they could tell I was such a disease boy. They were like, oh, no, let me get you this Revlon, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, ah, oh, get away from me. I'm 11. I don't want Revlon moisturizer. Um, and, you know, th- I have these messages stuck in my head, right? Like, I remember volunteering as a teenager at a kid's uh, camp of some kind. And, you know, kids are fun. They're, like, engaging with this, you know, the teenage counselors. And one of them comes up to me and was, like, saying something to me and, like, kind of touched my skin. And the kid was like, ew. Your skin feels like elephant skin. And I remember another time in college, a friend of mine came to visit with her cousin. Um, They walked into my dorm room, we chatted for a bit, and they walked out to their car parked in the back. What they didn't know was that my window was open, and uh, they were walking out to the parking lot behind, and I could hear them talking. And her cousin, my friend's cousin, said, what's up with the skin? And so these are the kinds of judgments Words, messages that I grew up with and keep being told by doctors, oh, you'll grow out of it, you'll grow out of it. 44 years old, I can say I finally grew out of it. Yay, it took quite a while. Um, But those kinds of experiences of being judged unfairly is something that I have lived with and that God has had to heal and redeem. And I think we can all relate on some level of feeling unfairly judged by the people around us, by the world around us. Feeling like our identity has become one flaw, one blemish, one characteristic that people don't appreciate or don't consider good. Perhaps we've been told by people we're not tall enough, not smart enough, not thin enough, not nice enough, not outgoing enough, too introverted. Or perhaps we feel like we have been judged for particular views we hold or for being a Christian even. Or perhaps we've been told we don't belong or we don't look the part or we don't have the right things or we're not the right color. We hate being judged. This is just a fact. No one likes being judged. And we hate the injustice of seeing a person defined by one thing, particularly if it's a negative thing. And we hate the stereotypes that are imposed upon us. If I were to listen to the stereotypes about Asians, I wouldn't be doing this job because, right, Asians are only good at math and sciences. Asians don't talk so good, and Asians aren't good leaders. Those are the stereotypes about Asians. So I, wouldn't, I would have chosen something else if I had listened to the stereotypes about Asians. So we all have these kind of individual examples of injustices, judgments that we have faced unfairly. Yet we live in a society where there's institutional kinds of injustices going on around us, where people in power are perpetuating those injustices. In today's psalm, it's exactly what the psalmist is talking about. We hear a community lament from Israel against its own leaders, the injustice of its own leaders. Now, Israel is different from church in that Israel was both church and nation rolled into one, right? And so as we apply it to ourselves, we can think about a lament that we might have towards 
church leaders, but we also might consider a lament we ha- might have towards our government leaders. And what I hope we will see from today's passage is we long for freedom from injustice, but that we find that freedom only in God's justice. We long for freedom from injustice, but we find that freedom only in God's justice. So let's work through today's passage and see what the Lord has to say. Now in this first section, verses 1 through 5, we'll see this idea of how we long for freedom from injustice. Verse 1 says this, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Almost all translators agree that this term, you gods, in verse 1, is referring to rulers and to mighty men. So again, a a lament towards the leaders of Israel. Now we have to remember that these psalms are written for the worship of God's people together and inspired as the word of God. And so God teaches us through this psalm that it is very appropriate, in fact needed at times for us to lament, to sorrow, to cry out to God for the injustices that exist in the church or even in our church. And so in the age of Me Too movement, continuing revelation of abuses within the church and then covered up by the church, we must lament of this. We must cry out to God for this kind of thing and long for freedom from such injustices even within the church. This is a lament, again, remember, sung in worship. And so how serious the elders and I must take this lament. What is our role that God has given us to be a shepherd of this flock? Have we in any way, as this, these first two verses talk about, devised wrong, dealt violence, or furthered injustices? God will hold us especially accountable for this role that he has given us. Now, this cry out to God can also be about our national leaders. It would be appropriate to think on that too. On one hand, right, our elected leaders are, sadly, a reflection of ourselves. We elected them into positions of power. And at the same time, these elected leaders do have a greater responsibility as well. They have a greater responsibility to show and to lead the people of this country to show us how to work together for the common good. And yet we see so much division. And these leaders are called, again, to model for the public what it means to work for the good of all people. Now, it's important to note that this biblical idea of lament is different from just anger. Now, now, lament can include feelings of anger, but anger itself is not lament. We can be angry at injustice, but our anger can't just be venting. Or worse, it can't just be punishing of people because then it will either go nowhere if it's just venting or at worst, we hurt people who perhaps don't even deserve to be hurt. Biblical lament should stoke our longing for God's justice. And biblical lament is meant to be an anger and sorrow over suffering and injustices of the world but expressed to God in hope for God's deliverance. Let me say that again. Biblical lament is anger and sorrow over suffering and injustice of the world expressed to God in hope for God's deliverance. So again, biblical lament should stoke our longing for God's justice. Instead, 
of us taking punishment into our own hands. And that's so easy to do for all of us. Biblical lament should enable us to love rather than retaliate. David goes on to describe these unjust leaders in verses 3 through 3, 3 through 5. He says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. David describes these leaders in no uncertain terms, right? It's not a pretty picture. He describes them as wicked. But he describes them as wicked from the time in their mother's womb. A phrase that David had used not that long ago in Psalm 51 to describe himself when he was repenting in that psalm about his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. David is recognizing that these leaders have an inherited problem, an inherited problem of sin. And yet at the same time, they are still responsible for their actions and their words. David describes the devastating effects of these injustices. He describes that injustice is like a charmed, poisonous snake that no longer listens to the tune of the enchanter of the charmer and attacks the charmer instead. There's great injustices described here, and we see it in our own world. Here's an example. In 1999, Mr. Horace Roberts was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 15 years in of life, uh, 15 years to life in the killing of Terry Cheek, who was a co-worker uh, with Mr. Roberts at Quest, Diagno- Quest Diagnostics and a woman with whom he had an affair. Now, he lied about this affair initially, which we can imagine why, but that was part of what got him convicted. Many years later, DNA was tested on all pieces of evidence involved in this case. And that led to Mr. Roberts being exonerated and led to the arrest of Miss Cheek's ex-husband and his nephew. Now, Mr. Roberts, who is now, was 60 last year, was released from California prison on October 3rd, 2018. And he said this after being released, I could not believe it was me walking out of prison. When you are in prison, You do not know if you will ever get out. And then he went on to say, I went and had me a southern-style breakfast. I had sausage, biscuits over gravy, and hash browns. I hadn't eaten like that since 1998, so it was really good. Injustice like that and others, greater injustices, smaller injustices, bring great devastation to individuals and to our society alike. And we live in a time where there is great attention upon injustices in our country. And there's certainly a a huge spotlight on it. There's a great debate about it. Debate about whether something is an injustice or not. The degree of to which that is an injustice. And our country is at odds with each other in these debates. And these kinds of debates that we must recognize will continue on in a life in a broken world. They will never be resolved. They will continue until Christ comes back. It should stoke our longing for God's justice. This psalm teaches us that we must continue to wrestle with the reality of injustice in our world. We can't just escape 
to a feel-good kind of faith that ignores injustices. Again, this psalm was a lament sung by the people of God. It would be, it would be kind of interesting because really the church doesn't do this in America. Like, what if we actually sung this psalm at church? That would be really countercultural. I don't know if we could handle it, honestly. But let's keep going. That was just off the top of my head. Nonetheless, we are called to wrestle with the reality of injustices within the church, outside of the church. We are called to lament to God, to cry out to God, so that God may stoke our longing for His justice and to long for freedom from injustices. The remainder of the psalm really shows us that we find that freedom in God's justice. Verse 6 says this, O God, break the teeth in their mouths, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. I'm going to say a note about verse 9 first. Basically, no translators know what to make of verse 9. It's like, we don't know what they meant when they said this. And there's different translations, but they, none of them make sense to us in a modern world. So we'll just ignore verse 9 for now. But David brings his longing for freedom from injustice to God in prayer. And what he prays here, we may be very uncomfortable with in our modern sensibilities. And yet, this psalm, again, is a community lament that calls for God to bring justice and judgment upon the wicked. It is what we would call in the psalms an imprecatory psalm. It is, it is uh, the strong poetic language against injustices and against the wicked. But we must note, again, that it is poetic language. It is not a request for God to do these exact things but an expression, a rhetorical, poetic expression of the outrage that the psalmist feels towards the injustices in this world and those who carried it out. But we also have to remember that these words were written and sung with the intention of lamenting for what is going on within God's people. It's so easy for us as Christians to read this and be like, oh, the wicked are those who are outside of the church, the ones who don't believe. Now, God certainly calls us to bring the hope of God to those who don't believe, but he also calls us first to look at ourselves as individuals and as the church. We know well Jesus' words, take the plank out of your eye first before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we see here, verse 6 talks about breaking the teeth of those out-of-control poisonous snakes, tearing out the fangs of young lions. It's a call for judgment, but also a call for God to take away all injustices and take away the harm that injustices and the wicked can bring. Verse 7 says, may these injustices flow away like water. May these injustices be like blunt arrows that do no harm. And yet again, verse 8 gets more severe to talk about how injust, may, may injustices in the wicked dissolve like snails in its own slime and like a stillborn child. The words are strong and difficult for us in our, again, in our age today to stomach. And yet we must remember 
Though we may be uncomfortable with these words, we at the same time resonate with a longing for injustices to go away. Maybe we don't feel comfortable praying in this way, yet we long for the injustices we see in our own lives that have happened to us and that we see happening to the people we love, we see happening to the people in our country, in our world. We long for all of those to be taken care of. And we know as Christians in a modern world, we much prefer focus on God is love. And God is love. And we must emphasize and prioritize the attribute of God is love. And yet we cannot forget that at the same time, he is a God of justice, that he is just. And, I, and here's the thing, and I hope you hear this well. As believers, we can't long for freedom from injustices without considering how these injustices go away. If there is no God of justice and only a God of love, then justice is left in our hands as humans. And what we see in our world today is we are quite willing to take justice into our own hands. We humans as individuals in a society must judge what and who is unjust and we must punish the unjust or at least reform the unjust, those we've deemed unjust. You see, if we cannot call upon a God to bring justice, then we feel the need to bring justice and we cannot find freedom in God's justice. We alone as humans then are left, whether followers of Christ or not, to bear the incredible burden of being judge and jury of the wrongs that we perceive around us. Can you bear that burden to be judge and jury in a world where we know very well there are injustices, whether in our own heart or in other people's hearts. And I believe our country is struggling with that burden right now. They long to see injustices go away, trying to be judge and jury, but also seeing how messy that is. Everyone can tend to think that they judge correctly and that they have the right to judge. People on many sides are passionately convinced that they are right in the, in, in the way they see injustices, in condemning those injustices, injustices, passionately convinced the other side is wrong, passionately trying to seek justice into their own hands. And some of that is good, right? It's fighting for what is good in our society. And that kind of justice, though, can, can, can be physical violence, but it also can be a violence of words aimed to hurt and to punish and to ostracize, often justice sought without any humility or any love for the person. I think we should be very concerned about justice via social media outrage without due process. Too often, that justice is executed barely on any facts. The psalmist calls for justice from God. But the call is an act of trust to wait upon God's justice and not to take that justice and judgment into our own hands. God is the one who has the wisdom to judge, 
the authority to judge. God judges with all the facts based on perfect understanding and righteousness. No implicit bias whatsoever. I understand we live in an age where we don't trust authority figures and certainly not this mysterious, invisible God. But again, the alternative, particularly for us as Christians, if we say we believe there's a God, the alternative is we become justice. Human beings. Do you have confidence in human justice to be perfectly righteous? I don't. This imprecatory psalm may sound extremely violent to us today and contrary to Jesus' call to love your enemy, but it is meant to take justice and judgment out of our hands as humans and put it back in the hands of the only one who can truly judge with perfect righteousness and justice. Miroslav Volf's book, Exclusion and Embrace, grew out of a lecture he gave in 1993 in which he was asked to reflect theologically about the Yugoslav wars and genocide in his homeland. I'm going to read a very, very long quote, but I didn't know how to cut it, and so just try, try to listen in, and I'll try to read it in a way that helps bring understanding. He says this, One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword to judge. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? Recalling my arguments about the self-immunization of the evildoers, one could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. It's a bit tricky. It's not. It would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. I, if God will not just, will not ju judge, if God will not eradicate what is evil, would he be worthy of our worship? Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than, than in showing that it is beneficial to us. Atlin has rightly drawn our attention to the fact that in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly, or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges that we should bring down the powerful from their thrones, which it says in Luke 1, seems responsible that God should do the same as the song of the revolutionary virgin explicitly states seems crude. And so, violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. I hope you're tracking. My thesis, 
that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering, he's really talking about himself here, I suggest you imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that endolized this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been abused, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats cut. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you, will soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds with God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die, it, the thesis. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. I know that was really long, but let me try to sum it up a little bit. The fact is, in our culture today, neither conservative or liberal want to acknowledge God as judge. We want to focus on God's love. We want a God who makes us feel better. We want a God who doesn't challenge us. And we want to focus on how God makes us feel good. But God of love, who is not also God of justice, cannot handle the injustices that we see in this world today. Simply put, if we will not leave judging in God's infallible hands, then we must do the judging, take the judging into our human fallible hands. A silly example. Yesterday, Amber and I were at the pool and there were these kids playing on these two humongous float toys. One ducky, one flamingo. Taking up way too much space. But they were awesome. And so, of course, the kids were fighting over who got the ducky, who got the flamingo, and whatever. Don't flip me over. And so the mom is supervising from the side of the pool and at some point she just gets really frustrated and she says to them, if you guys don't stop fighting, I'll come over there with a fork and burst both of those floats. <laughs> We're like, whoa. Now, my wife and I were kind of laughing internally, not because we're like, whoa, that mom is harsh. We're laughing because like, yep, I've definitely thought that before. <laughs> Probably about those very kids. We weren't judging her for her harshness and violence. We recognize it existed in our own hearts. That even whimsical flamingo float toys cannot escape our violence. Whether we believe in God or not, we are created in his image. And he is a God of justice. If we will re not recognize that attribute of, of his or recognize him at all, then we will still reflect this attribute of being made in his image, of being just people, at least trying to be just people. We cannot escape taking judgment into our own hands if we do not recognize that there is a God and he is judge and he is perfect in his judgment. We may 
want to continue to tell ourselves, let's just love each other, let's just be tolerant, let's just accept everyone and their truth and how they live. But the writing on the wall is that it is simply leading to a different kind of division, self-selected segregation and tribalism. We are not getting along as a country. The reason why Christians can follow Jesus' call to love our enemies is founded on two things. One, we recognize we are all born with the seed of sin and violence in our hearts and therefore can never think ourselves better than others and judge them in that way. Two, God is judge and we wait upon his justice. This is the only way to really love our enemies. To recognize we are no better than them no matter how evil we think they are and that there is a God who will do something about evil in this world and we entrust it to him. We hate being judged but we have to recognize in our most honest moments we are very quick to judge in our own hearts. We don't even recognize that we are judging people sometimes. We are quick to judge because we can't wait for God's justice. We rather take it into our own hands. God's, God is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and compassion. And that means waiting on his justice is hard. Because we would rather God zap the person who cut us off on the road. That would be much more satisfying then be like, okay, God, you're gracious and loving and slow to anger. Okay, I leave it in your hands. When we are hurt or angered, our heart inclination is to take revenge as soon as possible. And we may dish that revenge out literally within seconds. Often we display we want quick justice for others but the long arm of God's grace for ourselves. And it is a sign that the gospel has not done its work deep enough in our hearts yet. The psalm ends with these words, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely there is God who judges on earth. It's supposed to be this celebration that yes, God will judge and he will eradicate all evil and we will rejoice in the eradication of all evil and injustices. The tricky thing always here is that we want to call other people wicked and we are the righteous. The righteous here in these verses are the ones who take on the heart of God, God's heart for justice. The righteous will indeed rejoice when injustices are abolished. But the righteous here, described in Scripture, and the story of the Bible is this. The righteous are righteous not because of their own works, not because of their great choices. The righteous are righteous simply because of the grace of God shown to us. They are righteous because they have put their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, who was the only perfectly innocent one, shed his blood for our sins, for our wrongs, for our quickness to judge. And then... 
He gives us his perfect righteousness. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. And he says, if you put your faith in me, I will consider my perfect righteousness yours. And that is how I will see you forever and ever as long as you have faith in me. This kind of sacrifice and declaration of our righteousness through faith in Christ is the security that is given to us of God's grace and love. And it is that security that enables us to boldly root out injustice in our own hearts, to fight for it in this, in this world, to fight against injustice in this world, And we can therefore stop judging others as less than us because we know we ourselves have been shown grace and that there is a God who will one day justly judge all that has gone wrong. We can root out judgmentalism in our own hearts because we are the beloved of God, a God of love and justice. The righteous here again must take the heart of God God's heart of grace. And it is this love and justice of God that enables us to say that we must reform the church as well. And not just reform our society because it is the church that is described as the expression of God's kingdom in this world. We must reform not only our own hearts and root out injustice there, we must do so in our own churches. And we must be a part of it in this world as well. It is God's long arm of grace that enables us to pray to God for this longing for God to eradicate all evil, to give us the freedom from injustice that we long for, trusting that he is the God that will bring justice to bear upon all wrongs in this world. We long for freedom from injustice. And that freedom is found in God alone. Let's pray.